from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. You know, we can see ourselves reflected in the way the gorillas interact with each other. It just makes for such a moving experience. I mean, I'm regularly there with people who start crying as soon as they see the gorillas. It is something that is just, it's just fabulous. everybody and welcome to another episode of Travel That Matters. I hope that all of you have some great holiday plans coming up. I actually just got back from an amazing trip to South Africa, which we are going to feature in an upcoming episode. My trip also got me thinking about one of my all-time favorite interviews I did on Travel That Matters here, and that was with Dr. Tara Stawinski, who is the CEO of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. That, of course, is the charity that was founded by Diane Fossey way back in 1978. And Tara and her team, they continue the work of protecting and studying the endangered mountain gorillas in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They were actually in the process of opening up this incredible new visitors and research facility in Rwanda when I talked to Tara. And she gave us the inside scoop on that. But Honestly, the best part is just her fascinating stories and and insights from her years and and what just has to be one of the coolest jobs on earth. This episode with Tara originally aired in 2022, but it is just as relevant today, so please give it a listen, even if you've already heard it before. Also keep an eye out for all new episodes of Travel That Matters with Chef Wolfgang Puck, with Conanast Traveler, Editorial Director Divya Tani, and many other great guests. If you like the show, please write us a review or give us a quick rating. We have been so thrilled with all of the new listeners who have been tuning in, and and we truly appreciate all of your support. So thank you. And now, get ready for Dr. Tara Stowinski. Attention, fellow foodies. Bruce here, and I've got something truly special to spice up your day. Are you someone who believes that cooking and baking are about more than just following a recipe? I certainly am. Isn't really more about creating moments and memories and flavors that last a lifetime? Travel That Matters is very proud to have partnered with Watkins, the brand that's been helping passionate chefs, bakers, and home cooks like you and me flavor every moment. From crafting family recipes to inventing new dishes that are uniquely you, Watkins Innovative flavoring products have been a secret chef ingredient for more than 155 years. Watkins takes great pride in their products being free of artificial flavors and colors, and many are also non-GMO verified, certified organic, kosher certified, gluten-free. They offer a full line of flavoring products, including pure extracts, spices, herbs, grilling seasonings, rubs, marinades, bitters, and even artificial dye-free baking sprinkles. So... If you're as excited as I am to elevate your culinary creations, look for the Watkins products at your favorite retailer and join the Watkins community on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and X by searching for Watkins1868. That's Watkins1868. Dr. Tara Stowinski, thank you so much for joining us today on Travel Matters. So excited to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. I know you just got back from Rwanda, right? And and we want to hear all about the brand new Ellen DeGeneres campus. But first, I don't want to assume that everyone knows all about Diane Fossey and, and the work that she did. 
I of course cheated. I watched, I rewatched Girls in the Mist last week, so I'm I'm all prepared. But uh, I w- I want you to tell us just a little bit about who Diane Fossey was and what her gorilla fund is. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and Gorillas in the Mist is a really great place to start to learn more about Diane Fossey. But Diane Fossey was a woman who was passionate about animals. She grew up loving animals. She wanted to be a veterinarian, and that didn't work out. So she ended up becoming an occupational therapist. But in the early 1960s, she fulfilled a lifelong dream to go to Africa. And at that point, really decided that she needed to go back. And so in 1967, she went with no formal scientific training over to study the mountain gorillas um, of the Barunga region. And she lived up and worked in the forest for almost two decades before she was killed in 1985. And we are her original organization that she started. So we have been working in Rwanda now for more than 54 years. We say we're the world's longest running and largest organization fully dedicated to gorilla conservation. So every day we're doing the same things that Diane did. We're out in the forest protecting individual gorillas, studying them, and then also doing a lot of work with local communities to, to help um, improve their lives and remove the reasons that they're, that they're putting pressure um, on the gorillas' forest home. And so this is the same region that she was in. Are you working with some of the, you know, seeing some of the same gorillas that, that she knew back in the day? Yeah, so all of the gorillas that Diane studied have now passed away. In fact, I think we lost the last one just a few years ago, but they are all descendants of the ones that Diane studied. So yes, working in the same exact region, we've now been been monitoring more than six generations of gorillas, but all dating back to the time of Diane Fossey. So grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the gorillas that Diane Fossey studied. Wow. Okay, so we've heard how Diane Fossey got involved with this. How did you... Dr. Tara Stowinski get involved with grills? Like, was there a particular moment in your life that just, you know, changed the course of the direction? Uh, yeah, I, my background's a, a lot like Diane's in that I always loved animals and wanted to work them and also was planning to be a vet and went to Africa for the first time as well and just really fell in love with the idea of studying animals. So I came back uh, worked on my PhD here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where the Fossey Fund has its international headquarters. And so it was a little bit by chance that I ended up coming to this organization. I loved primates, was excited to work with primates, and was just lucky kind of to be working in this area and started working with the fund in 2002. So this is actually my 20th anniversary of wa- working with the Fossey Fund. I started as a scientist, so I've studied gorillas for more than 25 years, but in the last eight years, I moved on to the CEO role. So now leading the organization and our work that happens both in Rwanda, and we also have an active program in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is right over, right next door. First of all, congratulations, 20 years, a big year to be doing that with the opening of the new campus. But what, what is it about gorillas in particular? I mean, it sounds like that wasn't always your goal, but, but like, what is it about them that, that, kind of you find fascinating and, and, and also what makes them so important to save. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't feel more honored to work with this incredible species. They are, they're amazing. And I always say there's kind of, I think, three reasons why gorillas need saving. One is, A, they need it. Most people don't recognize there are four types of gorillas and all of them are considered either endangered or critically endangered, critically endangered being the last step before extinction in the wild. There are only a thousand, roughly a thousand mountain gorillas on the planet. Um, so they they really need our help. They are one of the world's most at-risk species. So yeah, number one, gorillas need us. They need our they need our help. But number two, we really need them. So a lot of people don't realize that gorillas live in the second largest standing tropical rainforest left 
on our planet. Um, they are the gardeners of those forests. They help take care of them, keep them healthy through their foraging and other behaviors. And these forests are some of our best natural defenses against climate change. So while the gorillas need us, we also need them. And then the last reason I always say that I think gorillas, you know, really deserve our protection is they are, you know, what you alluded to, Bruce, they are so like us. So they share 98% of our DNA and they share our common humanity. I mean, the best things that we see in human society, we see in gorilla society. They take care of their most vulnerable. They grieve when a family member is lost. They're incredibly intelligent. And so I think they really just, they deserve our, our care and our protection. How have you witnessed these types of emotions or, or you know, acts of, of kindness or, or whatever it is in, in the wild? Can you just give us an example or two? Yeah, it's one of the things that we love is just seeing these, these behaviors reflected day after day after day. Uh, one of my absolute favorite stories is about an individual named Can't Spee. So he was the last male that Diane Fossey studied. He died just a few years ago, but he presided over the largest group of gorillas ever known anywhere, 65 individuals, and, and the average gorilla family is usually about 10 individuals. And he he got his name from Diane Fossey, so he she had misidentified his mother as a male. And she showed up one day and this male gave birth and she said, well, that can't be. And so he got the name can't speak. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, male gorillas are the largest primate on the planet. They're 400 pounds of just pure muscle and all that is to defend their family. And despite that, they have a super gentle side, which is why we call them gentle giants. And they're often left to babysit young infants. So one day can't speak was babysitting. Um, six or seven infants. And our, one of our research assistants noticed that whenever an infant approached him, he did this vocalization we call pig grunt, which is kind of like a mild warning. It sounds like, oh, oh, oh. and when he would do that, the kids gave him a wide berth. It was kind of like, you know, leave me alone, stay away. And the kids gave him a wide berth. And it was very unusual for him. So our research assistant went up to sort of try and get a little bit closer and see what was happening. And he did the same thing to her. So she backed off and thought, well, you know, maybe he doesn't feel well, he's having a bad day, whatever. So later on when the group moved on and she went to follow them, she noticed that Cansby had actually been sitting next to a snare. And so by doing that vocalization, he kept all of those kids safe from that snare. Now, snares aren't set for gorillas. They're set for other animals like antelope, but the gorillas, and particularly little ones, can get caught in them. So he protected all of those infants in his family, but what she also felt um, in that moment was that he was also protecting her. So I think a great example of kind of that empathy and that intelligence and that caring that we, you know, we see in our own society that we also see reflected in gorillas too. Wow. Well, I guess that, that's the, the kind of thing you do or, or how you end up being the leader of a group of, of 65 gorillas. Amazing. There's also, there's another story I came across. It's about fascia. Am I, I'm not sure if mm -hmm. I'm saying that correctly, but it was something about crossing a river. Yeah, it's a fabulous example. So fascia, you know, every single day we go, uh, our trackers go in and we monitor half of the gorilla families that live in Rwanda. And what that means is each family has a dedicated set of trackers that go. And when they find the family group, they just the same way that when we come home at the end of the day, we look and make sure that our kids or our partners or our pets are all accounted for. We do that every day with the gorillas. So you go and you make sure that every gorilla is is there. And if one is missing, a patrol is organized to go find them. And so that's what happened. One day our, our trackers came into Isabakuru's group and they noticed that Fasha was missing. And so they started to look for her and found that the gorillas had encountered, uh, you know, an area where a number of snares had been set. 
And when they eventually found Fasha, she did have a snare on her foot. So our colleagues, the gorilla doctors came in and removed the snare, but it, it did some pretty good damage. It took her, her foot quite a while to heal. And one day her family was crossing a river and she was clearly uncomfortable. And we presumed it was because her foot wasn't 100% yet. And so while she waited on the one side of the river and her family had crossed over, her sister turned and we have these series of photographs of her sister just waiting there for her, her holding out her hand to encourage her to come across. And then once Fasha made it across the river, uh, her sister embraced her in this big hug, just these two little gorillas hugging each other. And when you pan back from that, you can see that her entire family was waiting for her on the other side of the river. So you really felt like her sister, you know, anticipated or could sense that her sister was uncomfortable, that she was scared and offered her that that reassurance that eventually enabled her to make it across the river. You brought up the empathy, the watching them interact. But you certainly don't have to be a, an, an expert scientist to recognize some of these things, right? I mean, even for someone just trekking to see the gorillas one time, you are going to see things that, you know, 100% convince you that they are highly intelligent, very similar to us animals, and also that they're very worth protecting. I mean, I, I think it's one of those experiences, right? I mean, I, I, quick aside, I, I actually just got back from the Galapagos and, and among many, many other fabulous wildlife encounters. There was one moment where we were we were kind of going from one island to another. We were in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden hundreds of dolphins are around mm -hmm. our I mean, hundreds. I, I've never seen anything like it. And they're jumping and they're playing and they're leading our boat. They're swimming, you know, three inches from our boat. All of us were just screaming in delight, but then also like these moments of silence and observing this this beautiful thing. And it was like, after it was all said and done, it was, I realized like, that was one of those moments, like you can't witness something like that without it, you know, changing your perspective. This change, this has a major impact in people. Like, have you witnessed this? Completely. Yeah. I think that seeing mountain gorillas in the wild is really, I, I would say it's like no other wildlife experience, at least not like one that I have had. And I think what makes it very different than kind of a traditional safari experience that most people have is that you are out of a vehicle. So, you know, on most safaris, you're in a vehicle, you drive up, you see lions, you see cheetah, you see leopard, you see elephants. Um, but there's always this kind of separation between you and them. With the gorillas, you're out, you're in their habitat, which is super humbling because you're going through stinging nettles and uneven, you know, ground and, and slipping and sliding in the mud and walking up a volcano. So immediately you just, I think, gain a huge respect for this, you know, fairly harsh environment in which these animals live. But then when you get to the family group, you are there because they are allowing you to be there. You know, this 400 pound male who is all of the, the size and strength is developed to protect his family. He is allowing you to sit in, in and amongst his group. And there's no separation. You know, they will walk right by you. You can smell them. You can hear them. And I think that experience of being immersed with them combined with the the all these behaviors that we've talked about that really you know we can see see re ourselves reflected in the way the gorillas interact with each other it just makes for such a moving experience i mean i'm regularly there with people who start crying as soon as they see the gorillas it is it is something that is just it's just fabulous we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with the Diane Fossey Gorilla Funds Tara Stowinski. And I, you know, there's also I've I've talked about this before on the on the show 
that element of, of having to work for it a little bit. It's not like you just drive up and see them. You have to go search and, and you hope that you're going to find them within, you know, X amount of hours, but you don't always find them that quickly. And, and yes, there are some, you know, hazards along the way, <laughs> but I want to go back to the status of gorillas right mm-hmm. now. Like how you mentioned the threats that they, they are facing. How does the current mountain gorilla population compare in terms of numbers and in terms of prospects uh, to what it did back in, in Diane Fossey's day? You know, luckily, it is really one of the rare conservation success stories. So when Diane Fossey was in this region, which we call the Virungas, there were sort of two populations of mountain gorillas. One is the Virungas, which is where Diane Fossey worked, and that includes the countries of Rwanda, Congo, and Uganda. And then there's another separate population in Uganda called the Bwindi gorillas. But if we just talk about the Virunga gorillas for right now, when Diane Fossey was there, they reached a low of about 250 individuals. And she really feared that they would go extinct before the year 2000. Instead, the most recent census, which was done around 2015, showed a population of just over 600 individuals. So the numbers, they didn't go extinct, like she predicted. The numbers have been increasing. And again, as I said, it's, it, you know, we hear so much bad news about the environment. And we know that there are over a million species that are at risk of extinction. Gorillas are still one of them. Mountain gorillas are still one of them. But the numbers are going in the right direction. But it's taken five decades of work. It's taken leadership from the Rwandan government. It's taken incredible support and extreme conservation on the ground. And I think that's one of the most important lessons from mountain gorillas is we can make a difference for these animals. But conservation does not happen overnight. It takes time. It takes effort. And it takes engaging the local community. They have to be part of the conservation solution. Um, but but we can make a difference. And that's the part that keeps me very optimistic about conservation as a whole, because these animals could have very easily disappeared off the face of the planet, but they haven't. And and they're going in the right direction. That is wonderful. And, and certainly we have a, a positive step for the future now with the opening of this Ellen DeGeneres campus. Can you tell us a little bit, first just tell us, you've touched on it already a bit, but Tell us about the setting of this new campus before we get into the details about what it is and everything. Where are we? You know, what's around you? What and what do you personally love about this this area of the world? Yeah, so we are in Rwanda, which is an absolutely amazing country. I've been going there for 20 years. And what I love is that a lot of people come to Rwanda to see the gorillas, and they have no idea how much of an impact the country of Rwanda is going to have on them, just being there, meeting the people. It's a gorgeous country, rolling hills. I can't say enough good things about it. Um, So please, please come visit. So we are up in the northwestern part of the country, and this forest, this beautiful forest in Volcanoes National Park, which is made up of six extinct volcanoes. So this really dramatic setting um, is the home of the mountain gorillas. And when Diane Fossey first started there, she was located actually in the forest. She was up at an elevation of just under 10,000 feet in this wet, cold environment. That's where she established the Karasuki Research Center. But since the 1990s, um, we have not operated out of the forest. So we have been operating out of a town that's about 30 miles away. So, you know, far from the gorillas, far from the communities we serve. And it's been about a 20-year dream of ours to build a permanent home. So we were renting at first one house, then two houses. And then eventually we were renting an office, which had one classroom. We converted the kitchen into a lab for all of our science work. And we really just had outgrown the space. So the desire to be closer to the gorillas as well as to have a purpose-built space that really met our needs, has been a 20-year dream. And in 2017, which was our 50th anniversary, 
uh, my board of directors was in Rwanda and we just said, we really want to make this come true. We're, we're committing to raising the money and, and moving forward. And we were really lucky within several weeks to have had a call out of the blue from Portia de Rossi, uh, Ellen's wife, who wanted to give her a unique and special present for her 60th birthday. And we talked about a lot of the initiatives we had going on, but they really loved this idea of building a campus and building our permanent home. And so that's how the relationship first started. That was late 2017. And and we are now officially open as of February 1st. We're having visitors on site. Our staff is located there. And yeah, I just returned yesterday. And I mean, my... I think I ran out of space on my phone from taking so many photos because <laughs> everywhere around the camp, the campus itself is absolutely gorgeous. It's made with local materials. It's, it's embedded into the environment. We planted over a quarter of a million native plants to reforest this former agricultural space. But then you've got the, the dramatic background of the volcanoes all around. All six volcanoes are, are visible from the site. So I just, every time I would walk through, I would take another picture, but it's just beautiful and very inspiring to work in that environment. And to, again, be up near, near the edge of the park where, where our activities happen on a daily basis. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to hear more about the brand new Ellen DeGeneres campus and the gorilla trekking experience with Dr. Tara Stowinski. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. Welcome back to my conversation with Diane Fossey, Gorilla Fund CEO, Tara Stowinski. So, okay, describe to us what is what does the campus entail? So obviously there's research facilities. You mentioned, you know, ability to, to take classes, visitor information. Can you just give us a picture of all the different things that you're doing and, and how that is beneficial to what you do? So it is a 12-acre facility. We have three main buildings. So one is a, what we call the Cindy Broder Conservation Gallery. So it is a public exhibit. So it was really designed both for tourists and for community members and Rwandans to come in and just get inspired and learn more about gorillas and learn why conserving them is important. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful gallery. It, it starts off talking about Diane and her work. We actually created a replica of her cabin up in the forest and have some of her artifacts that have never been seen before. They've been in storage that are on site there. So you can kind of see what her experience was like. We tell a lot of the same stories that you and I have talked about, you know, trying to, to show this link between gorilla behavior and human behavior and how closely related we are and build empathy. 
And then the exhibit really ends talking about the modern day conservationists. You know, Diane's been been dead for 36 years, and this work has been carried on by a number of people, um, led first and foremost by the government of Rwanda. And so really highlighting all the people that play a role in conservation. So that's a beautiful exhibit. As I said, we've already had visitors. We had our first school groups co coming through already, and I'm really excited to be able to host field trips for local schools for them to be able to come and be on site. And then in addition, we have the Robin Melanie Walton Education Center. So we had a single meeting room in our last space, and so we often were meeting in the hallways. We were meeting in the parking lot. So now we have multiple classrooms. We have a science library. We have a computer lab, and we have a really active program. You know, a big focus of our mission is training the next generation of conservationists in Rwanda and beyond. We know we need a skilled workforce if we're going to tackle the pretty significant challenges that face the environment. And so we're really excited now to have this space on-site built for students to be able to come. We built dorms so they can actually live on site. It's really meant to be kind of a mini conservation university in that respect. So would these be would these be graduate students from different countries, from Rwanda as well, coming into, you know, field work essentially? Yes, all of the above. So we have a really active program with the University of Rwanda. We host over 400 undergraduates every year. You know, they take classes, they do research, they have lectures by our team, but we are an international organization. And so we do have collaborators that come from around the world. And so it'll be all of the above. You know, we'll have local Rwandan students, students from the region. You know, our hope is to convene conferences, have trainings. All of this is stuff that we can now host on site because we have the space. And then the last area is the research center, the Sandy and Harold Price Research Center. And so that is where our labs are based. We went from having one lab to having five. So being able to do train more students in these labs, host more partnerships with scientific collaborators. So it's a real proper research center as opposed to a, a makeshift kitchen turned into a laboratory. And then we say that kind of the, the last feature is this landscape that I mentioned, really trying to make the whole campus a living laboratory. Most students, particularly students that live near the park, don't actually go into the park. You know, it's a national park, so it's, it's, it's not for people to be walking in and out of. It's a protected area. But by, having, by recreating these environments on site, we can use the whole landscape as a living lab. We've actually already had visitors from the UK on site who are building a gorilla garden and wanted to know what species they should use. So already the campus has been used for its original purpose, which is to really educate people about the biodiversity in this region, the plants that are there. You know, there's a lot of things besides in addition to gorillas that are, are special to this region and the campus can help to educate about that. You mentioned the the exhibitions. What else is there, you know, for, for a tourist who's going on a, you know, gorilla trekking adventure? What are some of the other opportunities to kind of enhance that experience? I know I, I've heard Go to Africa, the tour company has launched some kind of insider behind the scenes type stuff. In fact, there's one, I believe, where you could actually get one of the Diane Fossey fund researchers to accompany you on a gorilla trek, which sounds amazing. Is that type of stuff going to be available to travelers? Definitely. I mean, the, the public exhibit and the campus is open seven days a week. So people are always welcome to drop in and stop by and tour and do a self-guided tour. But we do offer these more in-depth experiences where people can come, they can tour the whole campus, they can go back and see the labs, find out what's happening there and spend time with our staff. I mean, the people that work for us, are, are a lot of them are like myself. They've been working in this field for two decades. They've dedicated their careers to conserving gorillas. They are, you know, some of the world's best authorities. And so getting to spend time 
and in bed with them, I think is a fabulous addition to anyone's trip because you really get to know and sort of peek behind the curtain to see what's involved in gorilla conservation. What about the local community? So you mentioned the the local schools coming on field trips and and helping get access to to a lot of the stuff for for locals. How else are you involving the communities around you and and how are they benefiting from from all the conservation work that you're doing? Our motto is helping people saving gorillas because we know that for gorillas to thrive, people need to thrive too. And so a significant part of the work that we do is addressing the basic needs of communities that live near the gorillas, both in Rwanda and Congo. So we focus on, you know, the the reasons that people are still reliant on these forest ecosystems for for their livelihood or their food. So we work in food security, water security, um, livelihood development, and then also education, working in the schools around the park to help the the students become the conservationists of the future and really understand what a unique environment that they live in. So it's a big part of what our team does. Just earlier or late last year, we did a mushroom cultivation project. A lot of people don't realize that mushrooms are super high in protein and they're a great food source. So we built mushroom huts for the local communities and helped them uh, plant and grow mushrooms. Amazingly, in 10 days, two of these huts produced about 500 pounds of mushrooms, which the community was then able <laughs> yeah, to consume themselves. They also shared it with members of their community that were not able to buy mushrooms. They might not have the resources to buy them. And then they even were able to sell some to make a profit. And one of my favorite parts was we did a cooking class as well. So, you I mean, it's it's one thing to introduce a food source, but if people aren't, if it's not part of their diet and they don't know how to take advantage of it, they may not use it. And so introduced a cooking class to teach them how to prepare and cook these mushrooms. And it was highly successful. So these are the types of initiatives that we focus on. And I have to say they're Im- embedded within the larger Rwandan government's goal of, of assisting communities and having conservation benefit communities. So the government shares 10% of the gorilla permit fees with the local communities. They have a revenue sharing program so that people are directly benefiting from tourists that come to see the gorillas and that they are running these similar types of programs. And so our work really complements this vision they have of making sure that conservation is also contributing to human welfare. Moving beyond Rwanda, you've you've brought up the Democratic Republic of Congo. I know the mountain gorilla habitat also crosses through Uganda. They face different challenges there than they do in Rwanda, perhaps, and and sometimes bigger threats. I, I actually read something recently about since 1996, something like 140 park rangers have been killed in the line of duty in the Virunga mountain range. Diane Fossey's murder was was very well publicized as it should be, but, but we don't hear about those nearly as much. And, and that's kind of shocking that 140 people just doing their jobs to protect the forest are, are killed. And I think that's gotten better. Certainly in Rwanda, it's gotten better and it's hopefully improving. But what do you do to address those challenges that they might be facing in the DRC? Yeah, so those numbers that you're you're talking about are exclusively to related to the DRC and to Virunga National Park, which has mountain gorilla habitat, but it's actually a huge, huge park, and a lot of those challenges occur in in areas that are outside of where the mountain gorillas live. When we looked to expand our work outside of Rwanda, we really looked at where were the where we felt the biggest conservation need was, and at that time we we decided to work with the growers gorillas. So these are gorillas that live in only in DRC. They're not found in any other country. They're a little bit west of Virunga National Park, and they are sort of in the same situation that mountain gorillas were in back in Diane Fossey's time. So in the last two decades, we've lost more than 60% of them 
uh, really as a direct result primarily of poaching. And so in 2000, we expanded our work over to DRC. And most of the Growers Gorillas, unlike mountain gorillas, do not live in national parks. They have no formal protection. They're living on community lands. And so our model there is we have the same kind of four basic principles uh, that we do in Rwanda, but we implement it not in a national park, but actually we've helped to create a community uh, conservation reserve. So we are now working with local communities to protect over 2,400 square kilometers of previously, you know, non-formally protected forest. So not only do growers, gorillas live there, but chimpanzees, leopards, buffalo, I mean, a whole host of, of species, including seven endangered species are found in that region. So there it's a much larger scale landscape. But what we're really trying to do is is sort of prevent the situation that we see in Rwanda where the only habitat that is left for mountain gorillas is this tiny habitat within a national park, trying to make sure that these forests that are outside of national parks have some value and are protected so that we don't just end up only with, with, with animals surviving in a national park area. Right. Well, very important work indeed. And, and the, you know, the rangers who are protecting these, these places are, you know, I do, I do think they're, I don't want to say overlooked, but we don't hear about them and how important what they do is enough. They're definitely heroes, both for the animals and, and for all of us who care about those animals. So a hundred percent. So what about Ellen and Portia? When are they, are they coming out to, to see the camp campus and, and are you going to be leading them on a gorilla trek? Yeah, they will be coming out this summer as well and trekking to see the gorillas. And I know they're really excited to see the campus. They had several trips planned over the last few years that were canceled because of coronavirus. So the last time they were there, we we just had land. We hadn't started building. So this will be the first time they're really seeing the impact of their gift. And um, I can't wait. I think I think they're going to be just just overwhelmed. And one of the things I'm really struck by when I when I'm at the campus and really was this last trip that brought it home for me because before that it was a construction site. So there was noise and there was dirt and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't finished, but is just how, how gorgeous this facility is. And I think that that's one of the things I've learned from our architects is that beauty really matters. It matters for the people that are working there. It shows that their, their work is important, that they're working in this very elevated, beautiful space. But I think it also sends a really important message about the, the importance of conservation, that when people see this space, they think, wow, you know, this is a nice place. This looks important. Something important must be happening there. And I think that that's an incredibly valuable message for us to be getting out, that conservation is important. It's, it's not just important for the gorillas. It's not just important for the people of Rwanda. It's important for the planet. Uh, we know the straits that our planet is facing with climate change and other challenges. And so I think it's wonderful that that conservation gets elevated to the level of importance that it deserves. And I hope when people come to this facility and they see it, that they leave inspired and, and recognizing the important role that these people on the ground are playing in preserving not just this part of the world, but really thinking about the, the role of conservation and the preservation of our own species and the planet itself. Well, something important definitely is happening there, and uh, I hope to see it myself in person someday soon. It it sounds absolutely fantastic, and of course, absolutely fascinating hearing your take on gorillas and and this new campus, and of course, this beautiful country of Rwanda. So thank you for joining us. And now, for the Wallen Wrap-Up. So wonderful speaking with Tara about gorillas, Rwanda, Ellen DeGeneres, the Diane Fossey Fund. That is an adventure that everyone should aspire to. And, and of course, a, a 
cause that just about anyone can get behind. On the subject of causes, I talked a bit with Tara about the people who protect the gorillas and some of the dangers that they face in their in their line of work. Now, this is not something that's unique to the DRC or, or the Virunga Mountains. It is really a reality in wildlife areas throughout Africa where you know rangers on a daily basis are literally risking their lives to protect gorillas, rhinos, elephants, so many other species from everything from you know poaching to to habitat destruction. That situation, as so many others, has been exacerbated by the pandemic because as tourism has you know come to a halt, many of the funds that were going to pay these rangers stopped flowing. So with that said, I would just like to give a quick plug to another organization that's helping to fund the ongoing work of these very important men and women. It's called Project Ranger, and it was started by my friends and former Travel That Matters guests, I should say, Derek and Beverly Jobert. Derek and Beverly are National Geographic filmmakers and the founders of the safari company Great Plains Conservation. And, you know, through their work on both fronts, they've worked hand in hand with rangers throughout Africa for decades and decades. And they know firsthand how essential their work is, not only for protecting wildlife, but also for supporting their families and the, and the local communities. So they created this organization to make sure that the rangers were still getting paid for their work, even though the tourist funds were, were drying up. So far, they have paid for more than 150 annual salaries for rangers in nine different African countries, including the DRC and Uganda. Anyways, if you're interested in learning more, please check out projectranger.org. And of course, for more information on Terra, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, and all the fabulous work that they do, go to gorillafund.org. I'd like to thank Dr. Tara Stowinski for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel That Matters is produced for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley. Assistance by Monica Kelly. Music by Joey Salvia. I'm Bruce Wallen, and we will see you down the road.